Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn to 1 John chapter 2, 1 John 2, 12. Pastor Ryan is on vacation and will be returning next Sunday. First John chapter two, verse twelve. We're going to be looking at uh, we're going to be looking at three verses there. Before we do, let's uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to preach, to bring your word. I thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have to gather together around your word. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ who are gathered here today. We want Christ to be glorified. Work through the preached word, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 12 there. Uh, if you're using a pew, I should have told you that pew Bible, it's page 1120. I assume you found it by now. Um, verse 12, the apostle John writes, I am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus name. I am writing to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have had victory over the evil one. I have written to you children because you have come to know the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Now, you may have picked up on some structural elements there. He addresses, first of all, children, and then fathers, and then young men, and then he does it again. Children, fathers, and young men. Um, who are the children, the fathers, and the young men? While the language of fathers and young men is uh, gender-specific, I think the meaning is inclusive, inclusive of women and females as well. So he's writing to all believers, all believers, male and female. Um, when he addresses children and then young men and then fathers, He's addressing Christians at different ages and stages, if you will, of the spiritual life, of their, of their spiritual pilgrimage. And some commentators and some preachers, when they preach this, they will um, specifically target the younger Christians with regards to the children's section and the older Christians with regards to the father section and the, the, the Christians uh, in the middle with regards to the young men. Um, But what he says to each group is true of every believer. Perhaps it's more meaningful that what he says to children is more meaningful at a younger stage in their Christian life. And what he says to fathers is more meaningful at an older stage of their as they're further along in their spiritual pilgrimage. But what he says to each one is true of all of them. So as we work through the passage today, I'm I'm going to take it as if all these things were 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 spoken to all of us and will apply it that way, just so you know from what position I'm coming from. Ultimately, I think all Christians here are being addressed in this passage and throughout this passage. The Apostle John wrote this particular, uh, wrote to a particular group of believers that he knew. But the Holy Spirit, in putting this passage in Scripture, is writing to all of us, and he's writing to you. These words are for you. He wrote this to you. This is God's this is John's word to the men he to the people he ministered to, but this is God's word to you. 
What is the purpose of these three verses? I think this passage is meant to remind you of who you are. I think it's meant to instruct and encourage believers. You've professed faith in Jesus Christ. You've become a Christian. You are born again. But what's that mean? Who are you? Who are you? This passage identifies a few basics that are true of you as a Christian. So today, let's turn our attention again to our identity as Christians and ground ourselves again in the happy facts of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. He starts off in verse 12. I am writing you to, I am writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus name. Your sins have been forgiven. So number one, your sins are forgiven. Who are you as a Christian? Your sins are forgiven. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means that your, your sins are forgiven. Now the reality is you have sins. You have sinned. You have done what is wrong and, and you've done it more than once. We are, we are guilty of many sins. We have sinned countless times. And your sins did count against you. Your sins did count against you. Um, you were guilty of many sins, and God judges sin, and he is a meticulous judge. Um, he is just. He is meticulous and accurate in his judgment. But now, through faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. They no longer count against you. Look at Psalm 103, 9 to 12. I stood at the back when I put these, uh, when I put this together. I stood at the back and I could read that. So I I hope you can read it too. Uh, Psalm 103, 9 to 12 says, He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is the happy position of the Christian. Or Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will he will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Your sins are forgiven. All your sins. Look at that last part. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. All your sins are forgiven. How are we possibly forgiven if God is a just God? And if he meticulously judges sins? Well, you know the answer as a believer. Christ has done the work for you. Christ went to the cross and took all your sins upon him on the cross, and he paid for our sins, Ephesians 1, 7. We have redemption in Christ through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Why are our trespasses forgiven? It's back in the phrase before that, through his blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't God's forgiveness wonderful? No wonderful where things aren't held against you that could legitimately be held against you. You know, people sometimes move away. They move away from the city and town and family that they know in order to get away from their sins in order to get away from their past so that their past won't be held against them in the new place to where they go. Some people commit suicide because they don't they're, they're They can't bear having all the things that they have done held against them. We want relief we want relief from the guilt and from the condemnation. 
I've read that the, the famed psychiatrist Carl Menninger once said that if he could convince the patients in psychiatric hospitals that their sins were forgiven, 75% of them could walk out of the, the institution they were in the next day. Some people downplay forgiveness. There's more to Christianity than forgiveness of sins. And, and that's true, but let's not overlook the significance and the wonder of forgiveness. Um, I've shared this before, but I, I think it illustrates the truth of the yearning that people have for forgiveness. There's a fictional story of a father and a son in Spain who had become estranged, and the son had uh, run away. And the father went looking through, throughout Spain for him, and at one point he was in Madrid, and he put in a, uh, an ad in the, uh, in the, in the personal section in, in the Madrid newspaper, and the ad read, uh, Paco, because his son's name was Paco. Uh, Paco, meet me, meet me at Hotel Montana noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. And on Tuesday, there were 800 young men whose name was Paco who had showed up. It, it's just, it's not a true story. It's a fictional story, but it illustrates, uh, it illustrates the yearning that people have for forgiveness. And if you recall, Pastor Ryan preached a couple weeks ago about the woman who was caught in adultery. And Jesus said, you know, where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? No one, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And Pastor Ryan hit hard on that, that notion that forgiveness is, is so important and that people yearn, yearn for forgiveness. And as a believer, all your sins are forgiven. All your sins are forgiven. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven. Christians need to be reminded of this from time to time, to be assured of this. God wants you to be assured of this. Doesn't he repeat it throughout his word? Because you are in Christ, your sins have been forgiven, all of them. They are no longer on your record. They no longer um, are held against you. They no longer doom you to hell. They no longer bar you from heaven. Well, the second thing he says, my wife wanted to fix this for me so it wouldn't fall off. I didn't let her. Wisdom, right? Wisdom. Uh, uh, then he, uh, moving on to uh, the second thing he says here. Let's go on to that. Number two, you have overcome the evil one. You have overcome the evil one. You know, I had a feeling, even as I said, no, it's fine, that I was going to regret that. So, But uh, <clears throat> look at uh, verse 13, the end of verse 13. I am, writing you to young, I am writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. And the end of verse 14. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. You have overcome the evil one, is what other translations say. So, believer, you have overcome the evil one. You say, I have? (laughs) Yes, you have. Uh, For example, you had victory over the evil one at your conversion. When you said yes to Christ, in that yes to Christ, you were saying no. You were saying no to the devil. Conversion was meaningfully uh, dramatized in some early church practices. In some places where they baptized uh, people, the baptismal candidates would stand and they would, uh, they would face west and they would renounce Satan three times and they would spit on him. And then they would turn east 
and they would uh, they would acknowledge Christ as Savior and Lord and King three times, and then they would prostrate themselves before Christ, and then they would be baptized, uh, signifying that in their identification with Christ, in their new allegiance to Christ, they were turning their back, they were renouncing uh, the devil, the world, the flesh, and the devil. In your yes to Christ, you said no to the devil, and you overcame the evil one. In your yes to Christ, you said no to the devil, and you were freed. You were freed. We just watched that song, I Am Free. You have been delivered from his realm. Colossians uh, Colossians 1.13, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Christ has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. The power of sin has been broken. Look at Romans six seventeen and 18. But thanks be to God that you used to be slaves to sin. You have over, uh, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and Satan and have become slaves to righteousness. Your deliverance from the evil one, uh, your deliverance from the evil one is dramatized or is uh, pictured in what Christ did when he drove out demons, uh, when he physically drove out demons from people. Uh, Peter read that passage earlier from Mark chapter 5 about the man who was possessed by a le- legion of demons. And think about that what that man was before and what he was afterward. Before he was enslaved to these demons. Um, uh, the passage in Luke that talks about that says he was... He, he was naked. Uh, no one could bind him. He was, he was living among the tombs. He was living among the defiled all the time. Um, no one could control him. But Jesus comes and he frees him. And now that man can, res- he, he, he's there sitting in his, clothed and in his right mind. That's what, that's what Christ has done for each one of us. He has delivered us from that allegiance to Satan. That allegiance to the world, the flesh, and the devil, so that now we can resist the devil. Now we can say no to the devil. And this is what we pray for, and this is what we witness for with others who are still under the thumb of the evil one. Um, Jesus uh, Jesus said this to the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 26. I now send you, and, th- and this is our mission as well, I now send you to them to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. Uh, that's what happens at conversion. That's what happens when people are born again. They are saying they are overcoming the evil one. Christ has given them the power and they say no to the devil for the first time and yes to Christ. Verse 14 says, I have written to you young men because you are strong. How are you strong? You are strong because the Holy Spirit now dwells in you. The Spirit of God dwells in you. The chains of sin have been broken. And you can be, God has provided for you to be well equipped by the Lord. Tammy read for us that passage from Ephesians 6. Just want to work through it real quick. Again, not the whole thing, but it says, finally, be strong in the Lord. This is your command, Christian. This is your, this is what God is saying to you. Finally, be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God because God has provided for you full armor against what? Against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So put on that full armor. And he tells us what that full armor is. Stand firm then with the belt of truth 
the breastplate of righteousness, the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He goes on in verse 14 with regards to that word in the passage we're looking at. I've written to you young men because you are strong and God's word remains in you. And you have had victory over the evil one. The word of God is abiding in you. We've talked before about the power of the word of God. It is the sword of the spirit, as we just saw in Ephesians 6. The scriptures are an amazing gift to you. So let the word of God abide in you. Let it soak in. You soak in the word. You read it. You study it. You soak in the word so that the word can soak into you. You seek to master the word. You'll never master the word. But you seek to master the word so that the word can master you. So that the word can shape you. Get together with others to read about it and talk about it together. The word of God is powerful against the evil one. Jesus demonstrated this when he was tempted in the desert. When the devil came to him after he was baptized and he was led out by the spirit into the desert for 40 days. Where he was fasting and the devil came to him and he tempted him. He threw out these three temptations that you read about in the gospels. And how did Jesus respond to each of the temptations? He quoted scripture. Now, it wasn't because Jesus had scripture memorized and he quoted scripture. That's not what defeated the devil, the, the simple quotation of scripture. But what the quote, but what it shows is that Jesus knew the word of God. The word of God, uh, was in his heart and in his life. It, it, it was his mindset. It was his worldview, if you will. Um, the word of God has the power to shape you into a person who thinks like Jesus. And so when temptation comes, you can recognize it. Because when temptation comes, and sometimes it comes subtly, but if you've been soaking in the word of God, you've been studying the word of God, you can recognize that subtle temptation because it doesn't seem right. It doesn't fit with something that you have studied in the word of God. And so with that biblical mindset, you can recognize temptation when it comes to you. The scriptures give you um, God's mindset. It has the power to shape your attitudes. It has the power to shape your desires. And by the way, the scriptures can't shape you too much if you're hardly ever in the scriptures. Um, you need to be in the scriptures on a regular basis with other believers on your own. You need to soak in uh, the scriptures. And that helps you to overcome the evil one. You have had victory over the evil one, and you need to continue to overcome to him. The devil is defeated. His doom is sure. Christ has defeated him. He doesn't have the power over us that he once did, but he can still cause problems. He can deceive us and seek to persuade us into sin. He can beckon and try to get us to follow. So we continue to resist him. But the, the balance of power has been shifted in our favor. You continue to overcome him through, for instance, resisting him. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Um, resist the devil and he will what? What do you have to do? You just, you just resist. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Stand firm. Resist and he will flee from you. One of the things we could probably do better too. <clears throat> excuse me. One of the things we could probably do better at is telling young Christians that as a Christian that there is a fight. <laughs> there is a fight against the evil one. Many, realize, many, many don't realize that they need to fight. That we have an enema, an enemy, an enema. We have an enemy, the devil, and his angels. 
And we've been given weapons to use. And we read about those in uh, Ephesians 6. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, we have divine power to demolish strongholds. And the weapons of our warfare are not of the world, but those weapons that we read about in Ephesians 6. Strong as he is, you can overcome the evil one. Excuse me. That's just a fact. But if you don't realize there's a fight, (laughs) it's difficult. Victory is difficult. Often young believers enjoy the forgiveness of sins and they enjoy the fellowship with God, but they don't realize there's a fight. And then gradually, subtly, they're led away. They're led away from uh, a true relationship with Christ. They're not prepared. And the devil comes to them deceptively, and by his schemes and subtle temptation, he leads them away. So John says, I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have victory over the evil one. Christians need to be reminded of this from time to time. You are strong. You've overcome the evil one. There are many evil ones in the world. There are many evil people. There are many demons. But this passage is talking about the supreme evil one, the devil. And it is him, the arch enemy, that you have overcome by the power of Christ. That's what God's word says. The fact that you are here right now, worshiping God through faith in Christ and paying attention to God's preached word, indicates a strength in you, a strength in you that the world doesn't possess. It's a strength that you did not used to have when you were not a Christian. The fact that you are here right now worshiping God through faith and you're paying attention to God's preached word is evidence that you you have had victory over the evil one. He would not have you believing in Jesus Christ. You've resisted him successfully to that point. You believe in the Lord Jesus. He would not have have you following Jesus Christ. You've resisted him to the point where you are following Jesus Christ. He would not have you worshiping God from the heart and you have overcome him because you are worshiping, I trust, God from the heart. He would not have you paying attention to his scriptures and you have resisted him and overcome him because you are paying attention to his scriptures. This is who you are as a Christian. Your sins are forgiven and you have overcome the evil one. The final one is this. You know God. <clears throat> Excuse me. You know God. Beginning of verse 13. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Uh, Beginning of verse 14, I've written to you, children, because you have come to know the father. I've written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Here's the supreme reality, the supreme goal, the supreme joy to know God, to know the father, the son and the Holy Spirit, to know the one who is from the beginning Know the Alpha and the Omega, the one who is and who was and is to come. David said, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Put simply, I want to be near God eternally. Uh, Jesus said when he was praying, he said, now this is eternal life that they may know you. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The apostle Paul said, but whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. 
The sons of Korah sang in Psalm 84, A single day spent in your temple is better than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather be a doorman of the temple of my God than live in palaces of wickedness. I, I just want to be near God. You, believer, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, if you're a born-again Christian, you know God. You know God. This is a relational knowledge. It's a relational knowledge. It's not simply that you know stuff about God, that you know truths about God, but that you have a relationship with him, that you know him. You know stuff about lots of people that you've never met personally. But God's not that way. You've met him through Jesus Christ. You know him through Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a joyful knowledge. It's a joyful knowledge. I read a biography of... Uh, President Eisenhower recently, and uh, I was amused by the description of uh, uh, one Admiral Ernest King, um, who served during World War II, uh, someone that Eisenhower had to deal with on a couple of occasions. But I was amused by what they said about Admiral King. His uh, One of his admirers, this is someone who admired Admiral King, said of him, his only weaknesses were other men's wives, alcohol, and intolerance. <laughs> He only had three vices, just those three little things right there. And then his daughter, Admiral King's daughter, said about him, he is the most even-tempered man in the Navy. He is always in a rage. (laughs) Uh, He must have been a joy to know, you know. (laughs) But to to know God is truly a joyful knowledge. For instance, Psalm 1611 You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The psalmist says, to be near you is joy. To be with you is joy. You know, we have, um, think of the joy of family relationships, if if you do have joyful family relationships. (laughs) We're, we're, uh, We're having family over later today to celebrate Callie's birthday. You know, I'm looking forward to that because there's there's a joy in getting together with family. Or think of the joy that you have. Think of the joy of friendship. Knowing God is like that, and more so. Knowing God is like that, that joyful kind of relationship. And then it's a it's a it's an everlasting knowledge. It's an everlasting knowledge. Uh, Dean was leading the Bible study Wednesday night, and uh, we were in Genesis chapter 17, and. And he highlighted this particular passage that uh, struck me. Um, The Lord uh, God is saying to Abraham, he's talking to Abraham, he says, I will keep my covenant. I will keep my covenant between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. The the idea of of an everlasting covenant with Abraham Abraham and that this this covenant was going to I think this verse implies that this covenant was going to last beyond Adam's earthly or uh, Abraham's earthly demise and that whether that's fully intended in this passage or not we know it's true later on in in uh, Exodus 3 Moses is speaking to no God is speaking to Moses and says then God continued I am the God of your father the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And this was some 500 year, 500 years later after Abraham. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Jesus highlighted this particular passage 
in, in, in demonstrating the proof of the resurrection because he highlighted the fact that it doesn't say that I was the God of Abraham, but I am the God of Abraham. It's an everlasting, it's an everlasting relationship. Think about that. You know God and you know him, you will know him from, from now through eternity. And it's a comforting knowledge. It's a comforting knowledge. Psalm chapter 90, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God's been around like forever. Did you know that? <laughs> his, his slogan could be, uh, taking care of people since I created everything. <laughs> um, and so... And so he writes here in this passage, I write to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And Christians need to be reminded of this from time to time. Do you know that you know God? Do you know who you know? You know the creator, and there's only one, and you know him. You know him who spoke the universe into being. You know him who told Noah how to build the ark. The one you prayed to this week is the same one that Moses prayed to. He's the same one that Elijah prayed to. He's the, he's the same one that Daniel prayed to three times a day. He's the same one that Rebecca prayed to about her pregnancy and God answered her. He's the same one that Hannah prayed to about her own particular problem and he answered her. The one you turn to this week is the same one that Hezekiah turned to when he learned that he was dying. It's the same one that Isaiah saw high and lifted up in magnificent glory. The one you turn to this week is the same one that David turned to when his men were considering mutiny, uh, mutiny against him. The one you trusted this week is the same one that Abraham trusted 4,000 years ago. So if you're a Christian, do you know your position? Do you understand these things about yourself? Being a Christian is a gracious gift from God. Do you see and recognize the wonder of these things that are true of you? All your sins, all your sins are forgiveness, uh, forgiveness. All your sins are forgiven. You have overcome the evil one and you, you know, God, you, you may have never met your city councilman. You may have never met your mayor, but you know, the creator of the universe, you know, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the creator calls you his child. Because you're born again in Christ. The king of kings calls you his friend. So if you're, if you're a believer, if, you're, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, I want you to repeat these things after me. All right? All my sins are forgiven. I have overcome the evil one. I know God. These are true of you as a believer. So let's, let's give thanks. Let's be grateful to God for his wonderful grace to us. Let's pray, shall we?